I'm Chad Reed. I'm Hillary Langer. I'm Gil Jenkins. And this is Climate Positive. I think there's a general sense that as society to address some of our, our biggest challenges, we need more sustainable, more resilient, more inclusive infrastructure. I think there's a sense that you know, just building the same infrastructure systems that we built last century and hoping to solve this century's problems, it, it's not the way to do it, but rather to be smarter and use technology to build more innovative infrastructure systems. So very, very strong need and also very strong tailwinds in that regard. Over the last few years, there's been an influx of capital seeking out profitable climate tech startups. At the same time, asset-backed financing has become generally more available and cheaper, all less equal, for renewable energy and other sustainable infrastructure projects. But there has been a missing middle. Investors willing to underwrite both technology and project-level risks to drive systemic climate-positive change. This is why Sidewalk Infrastructure Partners was created, to reimagine infrastructure investing for the 21st century. By integrating technological expertise, infrastructure experience, creative capital, and multi-stakeholder engagement, the firm has been making significant platform investments in the technology-enabled infrastructure of the future. So in this episode, I sit down with Jonathan Weiner, co-founder and co-CEO of Sidewalk Infrastructure Partners, to dive deep into many of the spaces the firm is investing in, from autonomous vehicle roadways to shared broadband solutions, to waste-free recycling, to truly resilient electric grids. Jonathan, thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure to have you. Thanks for having me. You started in the climate-positive infrastructure space way back in 2009, I believe, when you founded Neresis, a private equity fund that invests in alternative energy infrastructure in Asia. What drove your interest in climate, and why did you focus your efforts initially in Asia? I first started getting excited about you know climate tech and investing in sustainability actually a bit, bit earlier in my career. So it was in the early 2000s. I was at a large alternative asset manager and I was part of a team that helped set up their private equity investing arm. And we did that, you know, I, I had the opportunity to work a little bit as a generalist, but, but in a few different areas in technology and some of the really early renewable IPPs um, in emerging markets. And I think people kind of forget that back in the day, investing in renewable energy, or what we kind of call clean tech 1.0 now, had a big element of technology underwriting involved, right? A lot of this was like understanding what was in the lab, like new form factors of solar, how things would perform when they actually got in the field. And one of the things that was really interesting to me was that uh, one day we could be, you know, investing in technology and the next day really trying to figure out how to bring that technology into the field at scale and what type of commercial contracts would be necessary. So that's where I first got to investing in sustainability. And, and while I was at that firm, we, we also wound up starting to invest in emerging markets and we did a small deal in a run-of-the-river hydro developer in India. And it was it sort of opened my eyes to sort of what was going on in some of the emerging markets. You know, you had countries like India, which didn't have enough power. There were hundreds of millions of people who didn't have access to power, hugely inefficient grids, incredibly high power prices. And at the same time that we'd be looking at deals in India, we would also be looking at deals in the U.S. And in the U.S., um, we were building much larger IPPs, a little bit more technology forward. But um, you had a power surplus market, and you had to rely on you know all sorts of clever approaches to capital structure or tax equity or or other sort of ways to to figure out how to get that technology deployed. And so it just seemed obvious to me that the easier application or the more independently compelling application was was in Asia, and, and that's why we started Nereus. Then you did eventually make your way to Alphabet's Urban Innovation Platform, where you were the head of investments, and you managed funds dedicated to technology, real estate, and infrastructure. I believe. What were your most important learnings from this experience? Well, you know, it was interesting. Until I got to Alphabet, I was investing in more traditional alternative asset managers. 
And, you know, whether that's a venture firm or a growth equity firm or a hybrid firm or whatever the case may be. And when you're in those situations, you're really constrained a little bit by your mandate, right? There are certain types of investment tactics, whether it be like the stage of company or the type of company that you're going to invest in. And you're also sort of beholden by what's in market, right? Like what deals are out there to do if you have, you know, very, very strong origination capability. You know, when I said Alphabet, it was a completely different approach, which is, you know, obviously we could invest in, in whatever deals that were out there. And we, we did that sometimes. But what drove the analysis was really the technology and how we could develop and deploy, you know, compelling technologies. And sometimes it meant incubation. And, you know, when I was there, we, we incubated a handful of companies in addition to doing transactions that were in market. It sort of got me back into sort of a little bit more of an operating role. It started my career as, as an entrepreneur. And it, it just seemed like a much better way to invest, you know, to have the toolkit of a traditional investment firm, but also not to be dictated to by deal structure or, or what's in market. Instead, let technology lead you. So that was a really powerful experience. Now let's go into the impetus behind Sidewalk Infrastructure Partners. You've raised a billion dollars. You position yourself as an infrastructure investment firm. Tell us specifically the impetus behind the firm and the specific challenges you're attempting to address. Yeah. So, I mean, it goes back a little bit to what we were talking about before of sort of the, the transition of sort of clean tech 1.0 that I experienced earlier in my career. You know, I, I found that if you could both underwrite technology and underwrite project risk, that is how you can take first of their kind technologies um, out of the lab and actually get them built in the real world, you can really secure very compelling returns. Uh, first of their kind projects or early, you know, you can think about some of the early IPPs who are getting PPAs or, or other types of contracts that really provided tremendous excess return and they were able to sort of recap those assets as you know lower cost capital and you know entered the market over some period of time and with that journey that we saw for renewable energy when we were at alphabet we we're kind of seeing that happen in a lot of other sectors in mobility in digital infrastructure in what we call circular economy more approaches to recycling and so that was part of the impetus and we sort of looked around and said hey if you have an idea for a new sustainability company right you know, your Series A startup who has a new approach to energy efficiency. There are dozens, if not hundreds, of financial sponsors who'd be very happy to explore giving you a term sheet. And if you have a, an operating infrastructure asset, a core or core plus infrastructure asset, there are dozens of, you know, mega funds, $10 billion plus infrastructure funds who would love to, you know, explore uh, project financing those assets. But in that missing middle, we, we sort of think of it as like growth equity for sustainable infrastructure. There are very few firms who are able to both underwrite the technology and understand, you know, what technology risk looks like, but can also understand assets. And, you know, the venture capitalists would say, hey, an asset intensive play, that probably doesn't meet what I'm trying to do from an asset like, you know, scalable returns. And the core infrastructure or the core plus infrastructure investors are saying, hey, technology risk, that's not a good fit for me. There really was this lack of a company or a sponsor who was able to underwrite those risks and, and get those assets deployed. And, and that's what was the impetus for, for SIP. That's really interesting. I've worked on both sides myself, actually. I guess in what you're trying to do, though, there's a lot of policy that's involved as well. In energy and infrastructure, there is in general, but you're trying to change the built environment in a way that involves a myriad of stakeholders in a lot of cases. Can you talk a little bit about how you think about engaging policymakers and all the other stakeholders that are involved in the ecosystems of the spaces that you're in? Yeah, it, it, it's interesting because when I think about the policy question, and obviously when, you, when you're working in sustainable infrastructure, in many cases, these are regulated industries. In many cases, they're very influenced by, by policy. It, it's a core part of how we do underwriting and how we think about deploying assets and capital. I actually think about it both at like a macro level and a micro level. And so 
at, at the macro level, we have, you know, these incredibly strong tailwinds, which is to say, you know, if you look at the Inflation Reduction Act or the infrastructure bill that was passed before that, I think there's this widespread understanding that North America and the United States in particular has an infrastructure gap that it needs to fill. Um, it's one of the few bipartisan issues where people can get aligned around it. I think there's a general sense that as a society to address some of our, our biggest challenges, we need more sustainable, more resilient, more inclusive infrastructure. I think there's a sense that you know, just building the same infrastructure systems that we built last century and hoping to solve this century's problems is not the way to do it, but rather to be smarter and to use technology to build more innovative infrastructure systems. So very, very strong need and also very strong tailwinds in that regard. But those macro factors at the policy level, well, they are, they're very impactful. Don't get me wrong. They, they do help. Actually getting an asset built in the real world is a very local challenge. It is a multi-stakeholder challenge. You know, you noted that there might be either regulators or, or political stakeholders, but don't forget about the community as well. Like you're trying to serve a community and engaging that community and what it needs and what it wants is an incredibly important part of how we develop projects. And so, yeah, everything we do, is, you know, we have a playbook of, of how we try and engage municipalities, how we think about, you know, innovations in municipal procurement, how we think about multi-stakeholder processes to build um, consensus around what we are building it. But what it really comes down to at the end of the day is innovation in this country is largely led at the local level. It is, you know, city managers, it is mayors, it is, you know, procurement heads who know what their communities need and want and who are willing to be a little bit innovative to get it done. And and we try and align ourselves with, you know, municipal leaders where our capital and our technology and our projects can, can help them achieve goals that are at the top of their list. Uh, I sometimes say, if like, you're trying to solve someone's number seven problem and you're asking them to do it in like a, an innovative way, you know, really hard to get the people to do unnatural acts and to sort of do things for the first time to solve something that's not critical. And, and you'll see, like, with the projects that we do, we tend to address needs of communities that, that are sort of at the top three of, like, you're just talk to the mayor or the governor or the city manager. They say, oh, the thing that we're working with SIP on, that's one of our top three things. And I, I think that's a really important way of, of thinking about how you do sort of a, the micro political engagement. So now let's dig into some of your platform investments. First up, Cavenue, which is an operator of a road development system that's intended to build roads that are optimized for autonomous vehicles. Tell us about the problem this company is trying to address and about the inaugural project, I believe, that they're putting together. Yeah. So we started Cavenue a little over two years ago now, although some of the, the technology work and, and the thematic work have been going on for about a year before that, so you know, a little bit longer. The challenge that we had identified was, you know, about three years ago when we were working on this, you know, autonomy was sort of top of mind for everybody. And you know, if you were to ask somebody, Hey, when is level five autonomy going to get here? That's, that's the sort of level of autonomy where vehicles can sort of go wherever they want to drive themselves. You know, you might hear the CEO and an AV company being like, Oh, it'll be here in two years. It'll be here in two years. Like they'd all say that, you know, perpetually for two years. Um, but as we dug deeper and deeper into what the corner cases look like and, and sort of looked at the core engineering and the data, we basically came to the conclusion that this was going to be a, a much harder challenge than people are giving it credit for. And I, and I think you've seen that play out a little bit. You've seen people who used to say, you know, I remember the CEO um, of, of Waymo at the time used to say, you know, level five autonomy would be here, you know, shortly. And then, you know, about a year and a half ago, um, when he was still there, he would start saying, hey, I don't know when we're going to achieve level five autonomy, if ever. And that was a public statement that, that he sort of, you know, made. I think a real acknowledgement when you look at like the shutting down of Argo, for example, that this is a much more challenging issue than people gave it credit for. And so as we sort of started looking at that, we were like, hey, the industry has put tens of billions of dollars to work into these controllers and these perception systems and AVs. 
And no one's really put any energy or effort into what's the enabling infrastructure that could potentially, you know, simplify the operating domain in the near term so that, so that autonomy could work quicker and be commercial quicker, but also long term could aid in the coordination of these types of vehicles. And so, you know, you, you spoke earlier about how we think about policy. You know, we, we're really big on convening ecosystems before we ever make an investment. And we held a, a summit in Menlo Park a couple of years ago. We invited, I mean, it was 11 heads of DOTs, um, maybe eight different automakers, a bunch of the road operators, you can think like the transurbans or the Sintras, the more traditional managed lane operators, and sort of asked this question of, hey, what is the current roadside kit that is being used for an advanced managed lane? And how could we change that so that a vehicle that's equipped just with an L2 or an L3 system, so that the stuff you're seeing advertised in the Super Bowl where like somebody gets in there like, you know, Escalade or whatever it is and like takes their hands off the wheel, how could we actually get to true hands-off, eyes-off experience for that driver? And at the same time, starting to ask the question of with the L4 trucks, you know, what will it take to truly go driverless and not have, you know, four people behind the scenes sort of remote driving? And so came up with an interesting approach to that problem that marries both civil infrastructure and changes to the operating domain combined with um, digital infrastructure that, you know, allows uh, for the perception systems to be more accurate and, and to be able to see, effectively see farther than they otherwise would. And so that's what Kevin has developed. It's, it's an integrated civil and, and, and digital or so roadside kit for a digital network. Developing several projects right now. Um, the one I think you're referring to, which is perhaps the flagship or the one that's most well known for is in, in Michigan, a 42 mile stretch connecting Detroit and Ann Arbor. The pilot there, the first three miles will go live on this year. We're very excited about that. That use case is really focused on passenger vehicles. So, so, you know, people driving current production L2, L3 vehicles, think about your Tesla autopilot or your Ford Mach-E or something like that. And then at the same time, they're, they're working on several trucking corridors. And the application there is to create rights of way that are, are dedicated for L4 AV trucks. Are your customers the municipalities or the auto manufacturers or both? Who are you actually generating revenue from? The customer itself is the vehicle, right? So in a managed lane environment, you would say, hey, I can be driving on the highway or I can get into this managed lane that both is it's faster, right? In the same way, I might get into an HOT lane. And then when I also get in that lane, by paying the toll to get into that lane to go faster, I also am allowed to take my hands and eyes off the wheel during the period of time I'm in that, in that lane. And then likewise, on, on the trucking use case, I think where we're going is, hey, here's a dedicated right of way where trucks can sort of operate autonomously, but, you know, there's, there's sort of a toll associated with that. So it's very much, you know, we, we think of that company as very much like a next generation transurban or next generation Sintra, you know, a managed lane operator, but where that managed lane is enabled by technology to do things that a traditional managed lane can't do. Are you actually owning the lane or is it still a public good in this case? It's different um, state by state, um, how things work. And, and quite frankly, the, the public-private partnerships that are used for road operations are, are different state to state. In some cases, the business model would be very much partnering with the municipality to deploy the technology on roads that they continue to own. There are other opportunities, whether they're, they're greenfield developments or or dedicated you know, center lanes, for example, that can be repurposed, where it might very well be a, like a toll road operator. It might like, be like a transurban and own the right of way, but that varies tremendously state to state. Do you envision these sorts of lanes also having some sort of wireless charging capabilities, either now or in the future, that would further enable electrification of fleets and individual vehicles? It's something we're looking at, and, and as I think you're alluding to, there are a number of companies that are working on those types of solutions. You know, we haven't found one yet that is highly economic uh, in the context of what is already a pretty expensive managed lane. 
but you know the, the goal of Cavani long term is to be the developer of the roads of the future, which is to say that if you want to build the most sophisticated road, both from a civil perspective, potentially from a charging perspective, and also from the, the digital networks that will be necessary on the, on the roadside, you know, Cavani is the developer to do that. So it wouldn't surprise me if they look at that at some point, but the initial explorations that they've done that space um, to partner with, with folks that would bring that technology to bear on, on their roads hasn't proven highly economic. Although, by the way, if anyone's listening to this and they have such a technology, like please reach out. Uh, we'd love to incorporate it into, into those roads. Climate Positive is produced by Hannon Armstrong, a leading investor in climate solutions for over 30 years. To learn more about our climate positive journey, please visit HannonArmstrong.com. So now let's pivot to Ko-Fi, which is a platform you created to bridge the digital divide by enabling open and shared wireless networks. Tell us a little bit about the digital divide problem itself, and then I guess how Densair, which I think is a company you invested in, attempts to address this challenge. Yeah, so look, the, the digital divide, there are many different flavors of that challenge. I think that perhaps the most intuitive one is, of course, the rural versus urban divide, that there are still people in rural parts of America, but also rural parts of the rest of the world, where they don't have access to um, high-speed internet. And because that is so critical, both for education and for employment these days, but that really is problematic. It's almost like a utility, uh, like water or electricity, that you really want everyone to have. And certainly on, on that problem, you know, there are a lot of people with different solutions, whether that be satellite-based or, or other types of, you know, bringing fiber to rural environments using different types of backhaul. But the, the challenge that we, we, we were also focused on here, that's, that is another digital divide that people don't talk about as much, is the digital divide that happens within urban environments. And that digital divide is both internet to the home, but also uh, we think a lot about wireless networks because we think that, you know, there's going to be a lot of innovation around next generation 5G wireless. I don't mean 5G in the way that it's currently marketed, like your phone says you're on a 5G network. I mean, full standalone, you know, low latency, very high speed 5G. If you had ubiquitous 5G of that nature, there'll be tremendous amounts of innovation in much the same way that like Uber only exists or as an example of a piece of innovation because everyone started having a phone in their pocket. There'll be a whole next layer of, of sort of innovation that takes place if you have ubiquitous 5G. The challenge is with this type of digital divide, if you are a mobile network operator, an MNO, and you need to build these wireless networks, and with 5G, and given the spectrum that it's being built on, you need to um, what's called densify, which is you need to have um, sort of more radios more frequently in order to provide the service. It's very expensive to do that. And, and naturally, if you run a business, what you will do is you'll provide the best service to the customers you can afford to pay the highest price. That is a rational economic decision. And now, you know, by buying spectrum and, and by getting access to certain rights away, you might have obligations to provide a more ubiquitous service. Um, and, and that's certainly appropriate and, and happens. But by and large, if you make heat maps of urban environments, you'll find that there is much stronger wireless signal, much better performance in areas where, where there's higher income. And that's just not surprising. But if we believe this becomes an enabling tool for next generation innovation, whether that can also work from home, and you know, this idea of a, a borderless classroom where students might be able to, to access um, the internet, whether they're in school, on a bus, or at home, we really do want to move to a world where it becomes economic and possible to have you know ubiquitous five G wireless, and, and and that's what that's what the technology that Densair is developing is is trying to enable. Again, the customers they are typically public sector entities or or private companies, or who exactly are the primary customers? So what Densair does specifically is it has developed a, a type of what's called small cell, which is um, a radio that propagates wireless signal. And what's different about this radio than 
existing small cells that are out there is that it is what we call a neutral host, which is that either on its own spectrum that it can propagate on or on the spectrum of a carrier, it can propagate from multiple different MNOs at the same time. But that same small cell can be shared by AT&T, Verizon, Timo, a virtual mobile network operator. They can also create private networks on um, from the CBRS spectrum that is now available for public use. So as you mentioned, you can have a, public, a slice of it being used for a private network for a school or a municipality. And what's different is it changes the, the total cost of ownership quite dramatically. It used to be that each one of those users, if they wanted to have a small cell that could propagate their signal and be transparent to their network, they'd have to build their own pole, hang their own small cell. And actually, in New York, there's a bit of a controversy here, mild controversy, but they had to, to try and do this to solve this problem. They, they're building these up. Uh, like 20 foot tall poles and they have like these five different big radios they put a different radio in for each of the various different spectrums they need to propagate on and i think it was like the mayor went to cut the cut the ribbon on one of these on like the upper east side and you know new york post has this article like what are you doing in new york city hanging these horrible things instead of you know thinking about innovation it's just it's a funny example that's top of mind as i looked out there but the point being that it's not just that it's prettier and easier to deploy a single little box instead of these monstrous like frankenstein poles but it's also a whole lot cheaper and so that each company doesn't have to go replicate it. So rather than five companies or municipalities building the same network for midtown Manhattan, build one ubiquitous network for all of Manhattan using public right of way and then lease access to that to all five you know, users. It's, it's a much more cost effective way to deploy ubiquitous networks. My assessment is that Europe is better at this than we are in general. The services there are better, both Wi-Fi and cellular. Is that true? Does the data bear this out? And if so, why do you think that is? It's hard, I think, um, to generalize Europe um, as opposed to country by country because the way spectrum is allocated um, has a lot to do with whether or not it is economic and or required for networks to be built certain, in certain ways. So in certain countries, if you um, acquire spectrum, for example, it comes with certain rollout obligations associated with it. And part of the delta between the U.S. and Europe, even within, within Europe, is how much revenue is there in the user base to fund effectively a, a dense rollout slash what is the cost of the spectrum slash what are the rollout obligations that come with the spectrum and what's the competitive dynamic, how many operators are in a particular market. So it gets very hyper-local very, very fast as to why it becomes economic or not economic for, for networks to get deployed in certain ways. I do think, you know, and, and then Sarah, by the way, it's um, a UK-based company regardless of which one of those regimes you sort of find yourself in, just bringing down the total cost of ownership of densification by sharing infrastructure is undoubtedly the way for everyone to get to sort of better networks. Now let's go to recycling, especially plastics, which I think is a problem we're all familiar with. I personally tried to stop using single-use plastics, but uh, we all, I think, are forced to in some cases. You created a platform, PolyShift, and then through that, you've invested in AMP Robotics, which utilizes machine learning and robotics to try to address this crisis. Talk to us a little bit about the problem and solution here. Yeah, I mean, this dates back to sort of the very early days of SIP. Back in 2018, there was, there was a change in policy where we had been exporting a lot of our recycling waste to China. They basically stopped accepting it. And what that meant was a lot of recycling waste in the U.S. started going to, to landfills. And in particular... Plastics. Uh, I don't know if people are, are fully aware of this. You throw this plastic, your plastic, in like the blue bin, and you assume it's getting recycled. A very, very small percentage of plastic actually gets recycled. Some people put it under ten percent, and and the reason for that is that there are seven different types of plastic 
like if you look at the bottom of like your bottle or your yogurt cup, it'll have like a one or a two. It's like a type of plastic. And the different types of plastic need to be recycled in different using different processes. And sorting the plastic effectively is incredibly expensive. Um, humans are not particularly good at it. You have to like pick up two yogurt cups and the human doesn't know the difference between this plastic and this plastic. They have to kind of look at the bottom and, and, and it's a very time consuming thing. And so we became interested in this question back in 2018 of, you know, what would it take to more cost effectively sort plastics? I will say, I remember talking to my wife about this back in, in 2018, and, and, and I'm sure, you know, it's not the most interesting dinner conversation when your husband comes home. He's like, hey, did you know that plastic's not being recycled? Or, and I, like, about, about a year ago, come home one night, she's like, you know that John Oliver just told me that, you know, plastic's not getting recycled? And it's like, thank God for John Oliver. Like, no one would know about this problem. I've been talking about it at home for three years. But So we started, you know, trying to figure out if there uh, were technologies that could more effectively sort plastics specifically. There was at the time a, a young company um, called Amprobotics um, that was raising a feed round, which we, we co-led. And the initial problem that they've been focused on are our more general purpose material recycling facilities, which are where we take sort of all recyclables. So you can think about like metals and paper and plastics and, and sort it. And, you know, they have developed robots that, you know, think about like a gripping arm that can you know, sort trash and cameras. And the cameras use a machine learning algorithm that the more, uh, you know, the, the recyclables sort of come down the conveyor belt, the more they see, the more they're able to learn and distinguish um, the various different both types of trash and types of plastics. You know, it's been a few years now. It's been a very successful company. They just, you know, they've raised very successfully and have grown revenue and have sold many of these robots into existing facilities. Um, but they also announced last year um, the development of the first autonomous MERS that I'm, I think maybe anywhere in the world, uh, certainly in the United States, um, they've built three of them now. And so these are facilities where there are no people. Thinking, yeah, they're not. T- we call them sometimes dark murphs. They're not actually dark, but we just mean that there are there are no people in them. I think those are initially um, focused on primary murphs, but the real opportunity, I think, long term, will be to to have advanced sortation facilities where you can take very specific types of recycling, not plastics specifically, and further sort those plastics to make it economic to, to recycle them. So, so that's what that platform is focused on. Before we move on, let's touch on Resilia which is your platform to enable more resilient, bi-directional, transactive, and distributed electric grid. Obviously, we invest in this space broadly, but you've invested and partnered with OhmConnect to build Resi Station, I think it's called, which is the largest virtual power plant in North America. Tell us a bit more about OhmConnect and Resi Station. Sure. So the, the problem here is well known. It, you know, that we, we designed the electric grid in a unidirectional way, sort of, you know, centralized generation, up and spoke, you know, transmission distribution. And that made sense when the fundamental engineering problem that we were trying to solve was how do you get electricity to every home in America? Which, if you think about that as like a fundamental infrastructure and engineering challenge, it's incredible, um, you know, the energy grid that we built. But as you're moving towards more intermittent forms of generation, so wind and solar as opposed to thermal generation, um, for example, that approach of centralized generation distribution, you know, you need a grid that is able to both be responsive to that intermittent generation and can also leverage what are called distributed energy resources across the entire grid instead of having just centralized generation. That problem is, of course, the core of a lot of what people talk about is the energy transition, um, how we're going to move to new types of generation and what the follow-on effects are going to be for, for the grid and for policy and for other things. Um, within that space, and that's a huge space, there are, you know, entire funds and companies, your own and others that are, that are focused on it. There's a particular challenge that we think is important and, and particularly challenging to solve, which is how residential nodes on the on the energy grid can effectively engage in what some people would call demand response. But effectively what it means is 
interact with the grid in a constructive way so that you can reduce consumption instead of just increasing production. And the reason that is particularly challenging, there are a few reasons. One is that the system operators, I, I try to use that word instead of utilities because I want to acknowledge that there are different types of system operators, but you might also use the word utilities, typically are used to owning assets. It's like their job to own generation and transmission assets. There's a, a policy framework, rate basing that people sort of think about owning those, those assets over some period of time. They tend to control those assets. And so as a result of you know, putting these things on-prem at the customer's location, Typically now, the utility or the operator is not going to own the asset. They might not be able to directly control them. Aggregating that many devices is, is very challenging. And of course, the owner of those assets, we would call them a consumer. The utility might call them a ratepayer. I think there's a, there's a lot you can unpack in the distinction between those two words. But that consumer has the expectation that those assets, whether that be an EV charger, a smart thermostat, solar storage at, at their house, will first meet their requirements, whatever those might be before providing grid services. And so how a utility or system operator is going to engage with that and how a consumer is going to engage with their home energy management is a very challenging problem. It's a fundamentally different problem than sort of, you know, utility scale, solar or storage on the grid, which is also an important problem, but an easier technical problem. This is a much harder technical problem. And we think it's going to be exacerbated by the electrification of the vehicle fleet. Um, specifically, if you put an EV in everyone's garage with a charger and they all come home from work between four and six and plug in their EV at precisely the time that a lot of solar is coming off the grid, you know, you get the duck curve that like you see sort of in California. And so our initial question was, how can you develop technologies for greater grid edge flexibility? And then how can residential homes be supportive to the grid? And so that's what OwnConnect has done. They have initially, they, they actually focus on all sorts of DERs, but initially, um, I think they're most well known for smart thermostats. And so what they're able to do is at peak moments of demand on the grid, they're able to reduce consumption by the homes that are enrolled in their program. They get paid by the grid to do that. And then they share the money that they get from the grid back with the consumer for having participated. And so uh, what we created with them was what's called the virtual power plant, where we put up, I think it was $80 million to subsidize devices, primarily thermostats, but also other types of devices into homes that would enroll in their app-based system that allows them to participate in these types of bi-directional um, interactions with the grid. Um, they're now, I think, 250,000 homes in California, Texas, and New York that are participating. So does OhmConnect actually own the thermostats, the devices in the homes, or does the consumer own those? And then they just enroll in the program through the app. So the consumer gets a subsidized device. So instead of buying a Nest for X, you know, you buy it for Y. It, but when you get that Nest, it's enrolled in the OwnConnect program. Now you still have control over it and you could unenroll, I suppose. But, you know, most people don't. They sign up for this because they want to, you know, reduce their energy bill while also, you know, helping the grid be more sustainable. Very cool. In addition to these platforms and your related venture investments, you mentioned earlier you lead initiatives, whether that's a summit, you have an innovative infrastructure initiative or I3, you do the Community Wireless Coalition. Tell me about one or two of these and then how they are important to develop the ecosystems for the solutions that you're ultimately investing in. Yeah, you know, we talked about this before, that deploying new forms of infrastructure um, are multi-stakeholder uh, processes, with the public sector being important, the community obviously being critical, um, and obviously has to be economic from a financial and, and technological point of view. And so what we're doing with these is really trying to bring those various different actors together to come up with innovative ways to solve these problems. So um, I3, which recently actually um, merged with the Accelerator for America, so it's, it's part of the Accelerator for America, right, which we're very excited about. What they're really focused on is 
how do you do municipal procurement for more innovative approaches to infrastructure? There's nothing more boring than plastics except for procurement. I assure you my wife falls asleep when I start talking about municipal procurement. I think most people think of procurement as like, hey, how do I get the cheapest widget, you know, through bidding, right, at, at, at a government? And, and that's part of it, of course. But what we're really encouraging procurement officers to do is to sort of be aspirational and to think about different ways that they can procure outcomes-based solutions for problems. So if you're a city manager right now and you're like, wow, I really need to electrify my vehicle fleet or and or put chargers into my community at parking lot or municipal parking, I could, I suppose, you know, put out a very specific procurement for I'd like the following chargers for the cheapest price and have 10 different people respond. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, what I think I3 uh, would, would, would encourage and support, and, and they provide tools and precedents and support, a different approach to procurement where you say, hey, here's the challenge I have. How can I partner with the private sector to get the outcome I want without, you know, having to specify the specific device? So but that entire effort is really around how to be innovative with respect to municipal procurement. Community wireless is, is a very um, different approach. It comes back to that dense air challenge that we were kind of talking about before, which is, you know, municipalities who are providing rights of way to these next generation networks are not indifferent as to how these networks get built. I suspect that most municipal officers would want equitable networks to be built and ubiquitous networks to be built. And so this coalition is really thinking about what are the frameworks about how municipalities can can design and achieve more ubiquitous and, and equitable wireless. So again, it's about how do you bring communities and stakeholders together to envision how to deliver these solutions. You've raised a billion dollars from Alphabet, the Ontario Teachers Pension Fund, and Stepstone. You're obviously taking a very long-term view of these challenges. So what is your investment horizon and what is your typical exit strategy for these sorts of investments? Yeah, I mean, this is back to a question you asked at the beginning, which is um, what were some of the lessons that you learned when you were at Alphabet? One of the things that, that freed us when we were at Alphabet to do some you know, really exciting, interesting things, whether that be incubation or otherwise, is that you know, effectively we were a sole LP fund. Right. We had, you know, there's Alphabet's balance sheet, right? You don't get into the legal technicalities of what it was, but you have, you know, Alphabet's balance sheet. And so, you know, some of the traditional rules that you might have to follow if you were from venture fund, like I have a 10 year term, I have an extension, I'm investing in the following investment mandate, you know, series B companies with the following profiles or, you know, whatever, you know, we, we weren't constrained in that way. And so when we went about spinning out and, and setting up SIP, we really thought a lot about what type of company we wanted to be and what type of platforms we wanted to establish. And we wanted the flexibility to be an operating platform, potentially to develop technologies and incubate technologies, but also to transact. We wanted the ability to do pro, you know, project equity. We wanted the ability to do top co corporate equity. And you know, if we were going to go run around to the top 30 infrastructure LPs in the world, they would probably say like, hey, you got to fit within the traditional structures that are being used for infrastructure funds, which wouldn't have allowed that. So we were very lucky and fortunate to have the support of, of Alphabet, the Ontario Teachers Pension Plan, which has been a real innovator in infrastructure for, for two decades now, to design a structure that makes the most sense for our business. And that allows us to build the type of platforms that, that we've been able to build. Um, so we are an operating company with a mandate that's defined by the impact that we can have rather than the tactics and the type of um, transactions or development that we might do. And it was a real validation. So that was our Series A. And then in our Series B, I think it was a real validation that the Stepstone Group, which is one of the largest allocators to infrastructure globally, looked at the substance of what we had done with that structure and said, hey, 
you know, to infrastructure investors out there, it'd be really exciting for them to have access to this type of disruption, right? Like you have a $20 billion infrastructure portfolio and you have traditional toll roads, natural gas peaker plants and whatever else you have in there. You really do want to get exposure on the, or a tower company. Maybe you want to get a or data center company. Now you want to get exposure on the other side to like what's in, the innovations in those spaces. Um, either to go long that innovation or just as a hedge to your existing portfolio. No, I think we're an interesting fit. And so, um, Stepstone was able to help bring our solutions to that community. And so we're, we're very lucky to have the three of them as partners. They've been, they've been really great partners to us. Jonathan, we're almost done, but first we have the hot seat. We ask you for your immediate reaction to the following statements. The hardest decision I've ever made is. Uh, I'm going to choose to interpret that uh, professionally. And I was once asked whether or not I was willing to, to move around the world to a country I'd never been to in a continent that I had never been to with 72 hours notice. And I actually chose to go. And so that was a non-trivial professional decision. That was India? That was India, yeah. One thing I've changed my mind on is uh, the inevitability of progress. I think I used to naively believe that there's an inevitability of progress. And in my old age and, and cynical nature, I no longer believe that. The person I've learned the most from is? Uh, my wife. That's a safe and good answer. When I need to recharge, I? I usually take my kids to nature in one form or another. Go for a hike, go to the beach or something with my kids. The key ingredient to my productivity is? Uh, that, that I find a lot of joy in my work. I really, I'm excited and joyful about what, what I do. Brooklyn's best hidden treasure is? Uh, undoubtedly public records. We just had a SIP event there last night. Um, love that place. Nice. The most insightful book or article I've read recently is? It came out last year, but George Packer wrote this book, uh, Last Best Hope, about the changing communities in America, which I thought was really fascinating to read. To me, climate positive means remembering that we are uh, a steward of this planet for future generations and, and thinking seriously about you know the decisions that we make and the implications that it'll have on this planet in the future. Thank you very much, Jonathan. It's been a really, really fascinating discussion. I love the work you guys are doing and look forward to chatting again soon. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed this week's episode, please leave us a rating and review on Apple and Spotify, which really helps us reach more listeners. You can also let us know what you thought via Twitter at ClimatePosipod or email us at climatepositive at hannonarmstrong.com. I'm Chad Reed, and this is Climate Positive.